This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from the Prime Value Boardroom in the heart of Melbourne. Today's big question, how do I make my mark? We're asking this question today to Stephen Lawrence. Steve was a champion AFL footballer who played 146 games for Hawthorne Football Club and won a premiership in 1991. Now he works as a leadership speaker and executive coach developing character-based leadership. And he joins me now. Please welcome Steve Lawrence. Well, Steve, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks, Rob. Um, now, it's, Steve, it's September, finals footy. Mm. Are you excited? I am, although the Hawks aren't in there this year. Yeah, okay, yeah. It yeah. doesn't feel right. doesn't feel right that, here, At the no. moment, that Hawthorne is out. Um, <laughs> yeah. okay. It's been a drought since we won a premiership, at least yeah. three years, I think. Okay. So, sure. <laughs> Sorry to the Carlton That's support. right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you played finals footy way back in 1991 uh, on the way to the grand final. So, do finals games feel different to regular season games? They do. They yeah. do. They feel very different. Yeah, how so? Yeah. Well, I mean, the training built. Firstly, at training, you have. Well, I know we used to train at Glen Ferry in 1991, so that's the old Hawthorne ground. And um, normally, in a, in the home and away season, you would have, you know, there'd be a smattering of people at training, but during the finals, you've got hundreds or even thousands of people at training. So, it's much shorter and sharper. The training, the sense of anticipation, the focus is zeroed right in. Yeah. And then the games are enormous, and the the intensity. On match day, like first ten minutes are mad, yeah, uh, and you feel like, how am I going to play the whole game out? Yeah, uh, I think most players feel like that because of the the extraordinary physicality and you know it's like doing you know going for a, a sort of a, a sprint for ten minutes, right? Yeah, uh, and then you think, and then, but then it just settles in, and then it's just another game. But for yeah. the the build up, the anticipation is probably the the biggest difference. So then, what was it like then coming out to play before seventy thousand people in a grand final? Yeah, well, I did play in the one Waverley Grand Final, so the, the one that was not at the MCG because it was being renovated, and there were 75, actually. So okay, sorry, it's, yeah. So it didn't have the same feeling of being a Grand Final that I think would be typical. I've been mm-hmm. to a number of Grand Finals before and since. Yeah. So there wasn't that crowd feel, mm-hmm. uh, but it was still it still had all the other... We had the Grand Final parade through the city. There was all the build-up. What if you don't win? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to win a grand final was extraordinary, and uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to have, to have been. Playing. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a bit more about your footy career in a moment. But okay. to kick off, bigger questions. We like to ask a couple of smaller questions. <laughs> we do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're talking with Steve Lawrence about making our mark. So in today's smaller questions, Steve, I thought I'd test you on how much you know about your marks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, there's two questions, both yeah. multiple choice. Okay. Question one: In which game did you take your career high of 14 marks? Was it A, never? You could never take that many marks in a game. <laughs> was it B, 1991 qualifying final against West Coast? Was it C, in your football debut against North Melbourne in 1988? Or was it D, round six in 1991 against Fitzroy when Hawthorne scored 231 points and won by 157, <laughs> where it would appear even members of the crowd were coming on to kick goals? <laughs> <laughs> so which game did you score your career high of 14 marks? I'm not certain, but I think it could have been the qualifying final 1991. It wasn't, couldn't have been. It was, it was exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B, yes, okay. congratulations. Yeah. Actually, in the, the round six game in 1991 against Fitzroy, when you won by 157, that was Haw- at the time it was Hawthorne's biggest ever win. And from 231 points, do you remember how many points you got that day? 
I don't know. I don't remember how many points I got, but I know how many times I hit it down to Johnny Platten to kick to the Dunstall who kicked lots of goals. Okay, right. <laughs> how many was that? I don't think I kicked any points. Okay. <laughs> you, no, you did it. You got zero points. Yeah, That's yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, question two. According to the official statistics, how many marks did you take in the 1991 AFL Grand Final? Was it A, zero? You had a stinker. B, two? Was it C, 10 or D, 11? 10. And the answer is... See, yes, that's Very right. Congratulations. Yes, Steve, you've made your mark. You passed. Two of our two smaller questions. Big round of applause. Yeah. I'm not sure if I came out of that well or badly. <laughs> we had a pretty decent final series, though, in 991. You had 14 marks in the qualifying final yep. and, and an excellent game. But you had an excellent series that year. I did. It was uh, probably my best season at Hawthorne. Yeah. And um, the second half of the year was a bit of, I'd say, a purple patch for me. Yeah. Uh, and I was fortunate to win the player of the finals that year, so... No one expected us to win the 91 qualifying final over in Perth. I don't know if you recall, but we were three or four games. Uh, West Coast was three or four games clear at the, at the end of the season. And everybody, this was the West Coast, you know, premiership was in the bag type of thing. Yeah. And we went over to play them there, having done that about a month earlier. And while, whilst we didn't win in that home and away game earlier, we did come back thinking we could... We could beat them if we have to play them here, which we had been thinking about because we knew that they were going to get a first home final. Then we went over and beat them a little bit surprisingly. Uh, Not to us. I I thought we would win. Um, And I think belief's important in that. Uh, I had a great game. I had a really great game that day. And then we ended up playing them again in the grand final and again had a great game. And uh, so it it was a fantastic final series. And... Yeah, yeah look and, on, it, back on and it culminated in the Premiership. So what was it like then, holding the, the Premiership trophy? Yeah, well, it's funny because being at Hawthorne, I was still 22. I was quite young still at that point. And Hawthorne had played in, you know, almost all the grand finals of the 90s, uh, having won well, a little 80s. bit more. Yeah. Uh, sorry, of the 80s, uh, having won about half of them. And so it was sort of like, oh, well, this is what you do at Hawthorne. You play grand finals. <laughs> kind of thing. But that was the last one. So it was probably, to be honest, at the time, I kind of took it for granted a little bit. Right. It was like, oh, this is, we'll this, keep this, doing this, yeah. This is going to always uh, happen. So it's, it's value to me and it's, um, the significance of it has probably grown over the years. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was a great team that you played in, though. As you said, it was built on the team of the 80s. It you know, was, John yeah. Platton, Jason Dunstall, Dermot Brereton, Mick Tuck, etc. A number of Hall of Fame members. So, yep. so how did you feel when you first arrived in that playing group? <laughs> well, actually, I was a 17-year-old skinny kid from Brisbane coming from essentially junior football in a, in a state that had no AFL team. The, the Bears or the Lions hadn't even started yet. Uh, and I was an interstate recruit with a big kind of expectation because of that. And I couldn't do one chin-up. <laughs> I was so... Like, I remember being very overawed. Like, my teammates were the reigning premiers of the, of the previous year and you know, enormous personalities and, you know, superstar p- people and players. Yeah, and, Hall of Fame, a number of Hall yeah, of Famers. Uh, and, and I felt a little bit like a fraud, thinking, what am I doing here, you know? And I had a one-year contract and I, I really was vomiting at training the whole pre-season. I was terrified of training. Alan Jeans would yell at me and... You know, I was embarrassed looking around the gym, dermy, pump and iron and whatever, and I couldn't do one chin up with <laughs> my skinny little pencil arms. And um, But I found that, you know, having got through that season and then going into a second season, like I worked pretty hard, my capacity grew. And um, I suppose it's, a, it's, it's one of those lessons of life that you think, I can't do this. Uh, and often we're pushed beyond our limit. Uh, and then our capacity increases and mm. we can find that we can do things all of a sudden. And, and uh, So you could do more than one chin-up? Well, by the end, I could do a few. <laughs> uh, and um, so, yeah, no, then I ended up playing my first game in the early the following season. Yeah, yeah. and you had an excellent first game 
as well. You scored five goals or something in your first I game. I did, I yeah. did. Um, did that change think the dynamic <laughs> for, you, for you and the team? Well, it was interesting because Hawthorne's 88 team was an extraordinary team still. Uh, I mean, already at that point, it was almost at its height, I would say, and it ended up winning the premiership by a record margin. And I came in for Dermot Brereton, who was suspended for a week. I'm sure he was an accident, whatever he did. <laughs> and uh, I was playing centre-half forward in the reserves. And, you know, imagine their thinking was bring him in for a game, blood him a bit, and then put him back out. But I did kick five goals. And so that actually couldn't be dropped. But Dermot did come back in, and I could hardly be in front of him. And so I actually played two minutes of the following game. Right. Two minutes. Then I got dropped. <laughs> so I sat on the bench the whole game, and then I got dropped. So... It was an unusual beginning. Yeah. But how was football different back then? Because when you joined in the sort of late 80s, mm. football was very different to what it is now. It is. I think, uh, look, the style of football was different, but I think probably the culture of life as a footballer was very different. So when I arrived, it was semi-professional. You know, Michael Tuck, for example, he had a normal job. He was a plumber and he would go to work. He'd come to training, which was usually at the end of the day, so five o'clock. Uh, most days in the week, he was wearing his overalls. He'd been digging, you know, holes and sort of Made putting pipes there. into the ground. Yeah, and with mud all over him. And then he'd be training, and he'd had a full-time job and done that for 400 and odd game, or even 500, because he played a whole lot of. And these, by the end of my career, which was 12 years later, it was pretty close to fully professional. Uh, and now it's super duper professional. And mm. players who I know, current players who I know do find it very suffocating. They don't have their own life. There's mm. millions of meetings. There's lots of, a thousand little, looking at the video of last week, looking at next week, three weeks ahead. There's a lot of talking, a lot of videos, a lot of, you know, got to have two massages, got to have your ice bath, got to have your skill session, your weight session, your recovery session. And it's very um, all consuming. And really because of the income level, which is very high, the clubs feel they own the players. Mm. Um, and I think players generally do not enjoy playing as they did when they, were a kid and which was running around kicking a footy and having fun and being with their mates which I think is the heart of sports I think you can see there's some movements to try and sort of restore that but I think for many players it's actually a job and that's a high pressure job very high pressure job very public unless you're doing really well all the time you're pretty much um, because you're always the threat of being dropped yeah there's all that and so and there's a huge you know bubble especially in places like Melbourne or some of the bigger footy states uh so it's, it's, it's pretty hard going for a lot of players. And yeah. so there is a question then of identity mm. about who you are, etc. away yeah. from football. Was that something that you had to wrestle with? I don't think as much as many of the other players. I think if a person, like we see this where there's a lot of players who their whole identity is tied up with being the football player. And then so when they retire, they make a judgment of themselves that I'm a nobody because I'm no longer that. Mm. Uh, and then there's a whole question of what's the purpose of my life or if they ask that, but it's kind of gnawing away. For myself, it was never the first thing. And that was probably, I was a bit odd. I probably still am. <laughs> my wife tells me I'm odd. Um, so, I mean, for example, my, you know, I was always a little bit different in that I, you know, had interests that were outside of footy. You know, I loved theatre. I loved reading. I was, did a lot of studying. That was um, not a common experience for the... Uh, with some, but not so many. Like when we, had a tri- when we had a trip to London, for example, we're in London. I went to see the theatre about three or four times. I'm thinking, this is the world's, you know. And guys were in the pub till four in the morning and sleeping all day. I'm thinking, you can do that at home. You know, uh, I'm not saying everyone, but there were a number. Um, and, you know, I had personal faith and that was always a little bit of an oddity. Um, and so I, I was doing other things, had mission, had, you know, doing... Uh, so I, was, I, I found that my life was important and footy was something that I did. I loved doing it and I happened this great opportunity. Um, but in fact, I never set out to want to play AFL footy. The first time I ever thought of playing AFL was when I was asked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was playing cricket and footy and as a 16-year-old boy in Brisbane and... 
oh yeah, oh, okay, that sounds good. So it sort of came out of the blue. And so, and I was doing a lot of work in youth ministry when I, by the time I'd finished, mm. had a full, sort of almost full-time role as a 29-year-old. And so when I retired, I had plenty of other things to do. I wasn't really worried about mm. not being a footy player anymore. So you mentioned your youth ministry and so on. So was yeah. faith was an important part then of your journey? Yeah, it, it was was quite important even from very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why was that? Uh, so I'm one of, one of four boys. My family came from Austra- from South Africa to Australia. My dad played test cricket for South Africa. Um, my mum was a teacher. When I was about 12, dad really started to introduce prayer in our home. Mm-hmm. And so faith became quite important. And I realised it was something that I, I kind of loved. Something was growing inside my heart. It was opening up. Mum and dad had this really difficult relationship that became very, you know, brutal, not physical, but psychologically. And so that was a very wounding whole experience, my teenage years. Um, but it was in the middle of that that I really had a deeper experience of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jesus me, really... What, what well, I, when I was about 15, um, I was in a very bleak moment because there was... Um, I realised that mum and dad's relationship was terrible. It was falling down. Uh, and there was a lot of argumentation, a lot of um, negativity... And um, I, rem- I remember going through this very dark time. And even though I'd been praying since I was about 12 and faith was important, my, my notion of God was of someone who created the world, mm-hmm. but was kind of behind the clouds, tied up, not really in the world. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, it was obvious that the world just couldn't come from itself. Yeah. Uh, and so there was a, a creator God was, I guess, if I would put a words on it now like that. But when I was 15... I had this first real experience of the person of Jesus, and it was like I didn't know where it came from. I didn't even think about it. It just was, he was there, and it was like he was speaking to me. It wasn't a vision or anything, but deep conviction in my heart. And he was saying, I know what it's like for the whole world to fall down, for there to be no future, to feel alone, to be isolated, uh, to, to feel like there's nothing. Uh, and I was like that when I was on the cross, you know. And I know you probably can't see it now, but I want you to trust that there is a future. There is a hope. There is resurrection. And I believed that. And it wasn't like five minutes, everything. So this later. was a, sort of a real sort of tangible experience of Jesus speaking to you. Yeah. You, yeah. you weren't thinking... I'd you, never you, had you that of, before. So you, weren't, I didn't, you weren't cultivating it. You weren't looking for this uh, kind no, of experience. No, it was, you didn't feel like you're going crazy here? I didn't really. It seemed very real and natural. Yeah. It was yeah. extraordinary. Uh, and then it wasn't like five minutes later, but over a period of time, maybe weeks, months, I thought, hold on, I'm not in that space anymore. And yet something was different. I could feel it inside of me. And... I knew that I wanted to go deeper with that. And so, you know, I persevered with my faith. And even when I came to Melbourne, uh, having, like, as, having finished school, there was a question, well, is this just my dad's faith mm. or, or, or is it really mine? And I thought, well, I, I want to do this. Mm. And, and so I persevered with it and kept going to church and, uh, you know, praying and reading the scriptures and, uh, you know, serving and being part of a local parish and things mm. like that. And so so that, it really made its mark on your life. Yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, a vital yeah. experience. Yeah. Now, you made your mark by playing football in a variety of ways, <clears throat> culminating, of course, in that 1991 premiership. Yeah. But you did make your mark in other ways at the club. How was that? The culture of footy is a bit odd, for, you know, a bit uh, sometimes conflicting. And, and um, there were times when, as a person of faith or trying to be a person of integrity, uh, that there were challenges and one of those for example was um took place when all the players were going on a training camp to Phillip Island and all we got all on all got on the bus and I'm sitting at the very back of the bus and there's about 45 of us sitting on the bus and the bus driver as soon as we're sort of driving off from the car park turns on an x-rated pornographic film 
on the television at the front of the bus. Mm. And of course, there's this whoa, all the players. <laughs> yeah, a lot of players yeah, enjoying that. And um, and I, I mean, obviously, naturally, there's a great attraction with that. But at the same time, I knew that I didn't need this. This isn't good. Mm. I, I don't need this. And I'm stuck, stuck, stuck there, you know. And I thought someone's going to do something. But all the coaches and things were in the cars. And there was no... No, no officials there and no one was doing anything. And it was it's like, ooh, ah, it was going on. And I, even if I look out the window, I thought, this is, even the sounds are stimulating and I can't, you know. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sort of, then I find myself, I said, Lord, what am I going to do here, you know? And then I thought. So this is a real wrestle for you with your faith at this particular Well, and I was very uncomfortable. Part of it was just, I need to get out of this. And part of it was like, this shouldn't be happening and no one's doing anything. Um, so I just stood up and started walking down the length of the bus. I mean, of course, I couldn't even do anything s- subtly because I'm, I'm right at the back. It wasn't like I was near the front. It was like, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know? And uh, I didn't know what I would do, but I just was walking down. And then uh, from about halfway down, there was this accumulative sense of anticipation from the other players. It was like, ooh. Because there had been a few moments where, I mean, I never wanted to do these sort of things, but um, sometimes I had to, you know. Yeah. And... and so as I, as, as I got closer to the bus driver, I had no idea what I would do, but then I noticed immediately behind him was a, a player who, Luke McCabe, was from Adelaide, who was 17. I knew that. And so I leaned down into the bus driver's ear and I said, you have a minor on board this bus. What you're doing is legal. Now, I don't know if it was or not, <laughs> but it seemed like that was the end. And, and I said, so turn it off. Now I thought he'd turn around and say, F off, mate, or something like that. He didn't even look around or anything. He just reached up and turned it off. I was stunned but that was the easy bit because then I had to turn around (laughs) and face my 45 teammates who'd been enjoying the show and I was waiting to sort of get tomatoes hurled at me so to speak and you know abuse hurled but I walked all the way back which seemed a lot longer walking back (laughs) no one said a word I was stunned and and then uh, there's a bit of an addendum to this story because Never got mentioned. No one said anything for that 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 day. So everyone the three trained, day everyone trained normally at that training camp, etc. Yeah, no, I mean, there's look, there's lots of opportunities, lots of banter and all that, but you normally people would say things, but nothing got said. Three days of training camp. In fact, that season, I thought I started to imagine. Did I did I imagine this event? <laughs> was it you know? Was it in my imagination? My whole career finished. No one said a thing. In fact, it was never mentioned to me for 18 years until the funeral of Alan Jeans, our legendary coach. And I was, I was having coffee with Darren Pritchard and Andy Collins. Some of you will remember them. And Andy Collins raised it. And he said to me, Steve, do you remember the time you turned the porno off on the bus? I said, yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't mad. Uh, it wasn't one of those sort of imagination things. And he said, I need to tell you something about that. I said, oh, what is it? And he goes, well, as you know, I'm coaching in South Australia. He said, I do a lot of speaking all around the state you know, to schools, to business groups, community groups, and so on, often on leadership and things like that. And he said, I want to tell you that I always tell that story. I said, really? I've never heard it back, you know. And he said, yeah, I I always tell that story. And I always say when I tell that story that it's the greatest act of leadership I've ever seen. And I thought, wow, like, here am I thinking no one even thought of it or you know and he's talking about it. i've never heard and, I, and and darren pritchard said yeah that was that was amazing and i'm thinking it's the first i've heard this you know thinking i you know and he said and the reason is because i everybody you you knew that it was the right thing to do but that no one really was agreeing with you you still did it i said well it's true in that moment that's true 
And he said, well, that was, that was amazing. And I, I learned something from that when I heard that back. I think it was important for me to hear that because I realized you, know, you, can't, you can't really judge your audience. You don't know who your audience is and you've just got to do the right thing no matter what you do, whether it's secret or not. Uh, and it has its own power and it has its own life. Like that had its own life and I had no idea about it. Uh, and I think it was also encouraging to me to mm. try to keep persevering. Mm. So that, that, that's one example. Yeah, of well, uh, and it was obviously your faith was obviously a key part in you driving you to do that decision. Yeah, the, my faith and my faith which shaped my values. Uh, and yeah, I knew that that was poison. So. Mm. There is a part of the Bible which is formative for you, which helps shape your character and, and gives you your values, so to speak. Now, it's a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays and writes in the New Testament book of Ephesians in chapter 3. Yeah. Where Paul writes in verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, mm. so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Yeah. Now, here Paul speaks about the inner being, yeah. uh, inner self being strengthened. Is that something that you've experienced? For me, I think this is a key thing, especially my work is really around leaders and helping leaders. Uh, realize their purpose, helping them sort of be effective in shaping their culture, mm-hmm. serving people and so on. Um, and I think the, the fact is that the, the interior or the, the interior and the exterior dimensions have to be unified, have to be one. We don't have two lives, an interior life, a private life and a public life. That's just a, doesn't true. So whatever, whatever's going on on the ins- inside ha- is what shapes the outside. So we've got to actually attend to mm. those interior things, the inner person, as this text <laughs> well, the refers. Inner being, yeah, the yeah. inner being. I mean, people even look at the example like Mandela, who's a very famous example of someone who led a very divided nation in a very almost miraculous way. Obviously, he wasn't a saint, had, had problems. But having t- spent 27 years in prison and he chose not to resent and to bring about recrimination when he could well have done that, having four years after coming into becoming president, leading the nation that was expecting a civil war, mm. and it didn't happen. Uh, and it was because he attended to that interior. There was an interior victory that he won mm. that actually shaped his exterior leadership. Mm. And I think that's one example, and there are many like that. And, and so there's many decisions we can make that actually are happening in the secret of our hearts mm. and things that we, thoughts and feelings and how we attend to those that do impact on our relationships, on the way we lead, on the way we, we live. And of course, with faith, the great advantage is that we, personally, this is my absolute experience, is that God is the one who transforms us from the inside you know, mm. out. And, and uh, so the more we can allow God into our lives, the more things will change. Mm. So he's a real source of power for you. He's the only source of power for me. <laughs> right. My power is pretty, pretty pathetic, you know. Right. Yeah. Do you eat one chin up? Well, that's it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> You know, and also even just things like like having come from a broken family, you know, mm. and seeing that I was afraid of marriage. I thought it can't happen, it can't work, it's impossible. And uh, I realised that if we can really bring God in, especially in a marriage, if both couples can bring God in, it does shape and change things and mm. really guide and direct things. Mm. And I had a, I had a principal when I was working in a school who used to say, "Damaged people damage people," and I thought, "Oh, that's." kind of true but it's a bit depressing isn't it Uh, because then we feel like we're perpetuating but there's another truth which i think is greater than that and that is healed people heal people and so there's this idea of actually being transformed even with all of our weaknesses and things that maybe even we've done or things that have been done to us or circumstances we've faced actually can be changed Mm. and can be can shift our life and and we can then like make a difference in the lives of children and grandchildren and a lot of people around us, often in ways that we have no idea 
We don't realise how many lives we touch on a daily basis. And over years, there are thousands and thousands, directly and indirectly, of people. So attending to that interior and allowing God in actually shapes the whole world, even if we've kind of got a very ordinary mm, role mm, or whatever. Mm. Well, that's what Paul goes on to talk about. He talks about this, according to this power that is at work within us. And so yeah. that's obviously something that you've felt in a tangible and real way, the power of God in your life. Yeah, even when I feel very weak, <laughs> uh, God's power like, seems to work. Now, you've written a book on leadership yeah. called Make Your Mark. So how, how important is character and our values in leadership? Yeah, so the book, it's a leadership book that focuses on the role of character in leadership, uh, not so much strategy and technical knowledge. And I suppose I emphasize in this uh, book the fact that most significant failures of leadership are failures of character. I mean, it's great to see Steve Smith so brilliant in England, but the... The catastrophe that nearly that really did happen for Australian cricket was because of a failure of character. Both Smith and Warner, world's best players among them, uh, brilliant captain, strategically, you know, excellent. It was just <laughs> they cheated. Mm. I mean, it was a failure of character that nearly swamped Australian cricket, uh, and you know that's very important for our whole nation, <laughs> Australian cricket. And there are many examples such as this. The global financial crisis wasn't because those guys didn't understand finance. Or how to work it they, they basically were being greedy mm. uh, and um, so I think it's not simply a, like a side issue it's a fundamental issue how do we exercise our responsibility how do we see the, the way we serve people how do we treat people for their own sake not because of just utilitarian purposes mm. all of those sorts of things the more people I think exercise integrity and authenticity they then actually do a greater job they, they, their performance is better. They, 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 they build a greater trust. And we've seen the breaking of trust is a massive issue in our culture, on institutions right across the board. Uh, and it's because we're not being trustworthy. Hmm. There's a lot of leadership stuff, which is strategy, which is this, that, the other thing, all of which is important. But I don't think it's primarily important. I think it's character. It's about character, yeah. yeah. I think we talk a lot about values, and people, people often say, well, so long as we have the values, then it's okay to, we don't sort of really need the faith. But in fact, which failures do we have? And the more, the more God is pushed out of the public life, the less access to authentic values we have because we're not sure how to measure those values. And so that's becoming an increasingly big challenge in our culture. You know, what is the source of our values? Uh, and uh, so I think going back to the ultimate source, the revelation from God, the scriptures, and, mm. you know, the, what the church teaches us, uh, that's not only known by uh, faith, but also by reason. It consists, it's consistent with, it it's resonates with our sense of objective reality. Mm. Um, that mm. I think the more we can do that, the more we will serve our culture and the future. So Steve, okay. how do I make my mark? Be yourself and give yourself. Yeah, and faith's important for you as well in making yeah. your mark? Yeah, I think you can fully be yourself without God. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, how do I make my mark? From Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please give a big hand today to our guest today, Steve Lawrence. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.